0: Roger walked in the Dwyer Flying Services looking for a job. The owner, Jerry Dwyer, was not around, but his wife, Barb, met Roger and immediately took a liking to him. He was young and impressionable and seemed to really know his way around an airplane. Barb told Roger that he would have to wait until Jerry arrives, but she's sure that Roger was as good as hired. And as Barb predicted, Roger was hired on the spot. At that time, Roger was 20 years old originally from the town of Alta, Iowa, and have been flying planes for years. He received his commercial pilot license in 1958 and was fortunate enough to be hired by Dwyer Flying Services. Roger and Jerry piloted many local routes from the Mason City, Iowa Airport. The same year, Roger married his high school sweetheart, Deanne Leeds. Everything seemed to be going well. Roger and Deanne became close friends with Jerry and Barb and regularly went to parties along with other employees of the Flying Service. Jerry, through his business, owned many small planes. Roger convinced him to buy a Beechcraft 35 Bonanza that was considered the fast and most sophisticated aircraft model of its time. Both Roger and Jerry flew the Beechcraft multiple times. They truly enjoyed life and work as pilots. Little did Jerry realize that this particular beachcraft will one day be known as one of the most infamous planes in the world. And only Jerry, and Jerry alone, knows where it is. You are listening to Untimely a podcast about events in earlier or recent history that resulted in untimely fatalities and damages in its wake. I am your host, Lynn. The song American Pie by Don McLean have inspired artists in various covers throughout the decades. This song has beautiful lyrics, a memorable guitar riff, and is regularly sang by brave people in almost every karaoke bar in the world. Like me, most people can follow the lyrics by heart, But what many do not realize is that this song by Don McLean was inspired by a tragedy. In this episode of Untimely, we'll learn about the unfortunate event that inspired the creation of an unforgettable song and about the people who were caught in the middle of it. Charles Buddy Holly was born in Lubbock, Texas in 1936. After graduating from high school, he decided to pursue a career in music. Holly opened for Elvis Presley in a couple of concerts, and as he watched the King play this new type of music, Buddy was energized and soon changed his style from country and western to rock and roll. Holly eventually impressed enough several music producers who in turn signed him on a record contract. It was then that his last name was misspelled to H-O-L-L-Y, instead of H-O-L-L-E-Y, but it did not bother him at all. From 1956 to 1959, Holly was a part of the group The Crickets, with his high school friend Jerry Allison, bassist Joe Malden, and guitarist Nicky Sullivan. Holly and The Crickets recorded a song named That'll Be The Day, which became their first-ever record hit. More top-of-the-chart songs followed, including Oh Boy and Peggy Sue. Fun fact. Ed Sullivan, at that time, felt the song Oh Boy was too rowdy for national TV, so the band played That'll Be The Day and Peggy Sue instead. During those years, Holly and the Crickets toured the world. He traveled as far as Australia and the United Kingdom, playing in front of adoring crowds in an intense tour of 50 shows in 25 days. When they came back in the United States, Holly and the band recorded more songs, which became hit records. He met Maria Elena Santiago, in New York while recording and the two lovebirds eventually married in secret. The decision to make the marriage a secret is to make sure that Holly's female fans will continue to support him in the band. Maria Elena was introduced as the band's secretary to avoid suspicion. While on tour and recording, Holly met guitarist Tommy Alsop and bassist Waylon Jennings. In December 1958, Holly left the Crickets because of the many clashes with the record producers and their manager. He then recruited Elsa Jennings, and a drummer named Carl Bunch to go with him on tour in a month to headline the Winter Dance Party in the Midwest. Before he left, Maria Elena was about five months pregnant with their first child. Richard Valenzuela was born in 1941 and raised in the San Fernando Valley area outside of Los Angeles, California. He grew up listening to mariachi music, rhythm and blues, and jump blues. As a young boy, his father encouraged him to learn how to play the guitar and trumpet. Then later, he taught himself the drums. Richard would bring his guitar to school, and his musical prowess was appreciated by many of his friends, family, and classmates. While he was 16, he was recruited by the Silhouettes, a local band in their area, to be their lead guitarist, but then eventually... Richard became the lead singer. In 1958, an audition at Delphi led him to sign a music contract that allowed him to record his first hit song called Donna. The song was about his then-girlfriend, Donna Ludwig. The record company shortened his name to Richie Valence so that he would appeal to a broader audience. More hit songs followed, including Come On, Let's Go and his most famous record, La Bamba. Delphi required Ritchie to tour all over the country and appeared on TV spots, including American Bandstand. Ritchie was deathly afraid of flying. In 1957, two airplanes, a Douglas DC and a U.S. Air Force Scorpion, collided mid-air and some of the wreckage killed students at the Pacoma Junior High in San Fernando Valley. Ritchie would have been at the school when the collision happened, but that day he was with his parents. Although he was spared, many of his childhood friends died. It took everything Richie had to step on a plane and complete the tour. In the early months of 1958, he joined the Winter Dance Party, playing in the Midwestern states. Giles Perry Richardson, or JP, spent his younger days in Beaumont, Texas, but was born in Sabine Pass, Texas, in 1930. His interest in music led him to a part-time job as a local radio disc jockey while he was in college. The station took notice of his talent and hired him full-time, which caused him to drop out of school. Years later, he was drafted in the Army, and after his honorable discharge, he came back to work at the radio station. By then, he named himself the Big Bopper after the dance craze The Bop. Richardson's inclination to music was not limited to placing records on the turntable but also in writing and singing songs. He wrote hit songs for George Jones and many others. But what launched Richardson as a music star was a song he wrote and recorded called Chantilly Lace. More of his original songs were produced into hits and the demand for the Big Bopper became too hard to ignore. He then joined a tour group called the Winter Dance Party to fill the market by the public to hear Chantilly Lace live. The Winter Dance Party began its hellish tour on January 23, 1959 at George Devine's Ballroom in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For 24 days straight, every night, the bands endured sub-zero temperatures while traveling in an old rickety bus whose heat crapped out by the second week. The bus was cramped and filled with instruments, equipment, and luggage. The Winter Dance Party's headliners were Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, Dion and the Belmonts, the Big Bopper Richardson, and Franco Sardo. What made this tour torturous for everyone was the zigzagging routes that they had to get to every night. In the first half, the tour traveled in Wisconsin, then Minnesota, back to Wisconsin, then Iowa, then Minnesota, while in the last half was Illinois, then Kentucky, then Iowa, and even went as far as Youngstown, Ohio. Basically, the tour and its weary travelers had to endure both ridiculous travel times and the unforgiving frozen tundra of the upper Midwestern states in the middle of winter. It was so cold that Carl Bunch, Buddy Holly's drummer, had to leave the tour to get treated at a hospital on February 1st because of frostbitten toes. Everyone's mood and energy were undoubtedly at a low point weeks into the tour. On February 2, 1959, the group left Green Bay, Wisconsin to play the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, some 350 miles or 563 kilometers away. Originally, Clear Lake was not a part of the tour, but the organizers were able to arrange this stop for the band. The next venue for the tour was Moorhead, Minnesota, a five-and-a-half-hour grueling drive up north. Holly, exhausted at the thought of having to freeze on a bus just after losing his drummer, told his band that he'll charter a plane to get ahead of the tour and decrease the time of travel. The flight will land in Fargo, North Dakota, where the tour bus will pick them up to get to Moorhead. Not only will they stay warm, but Holly will be able to do some laundry for the band and get some much-needed rest. Before the bands played on stage, Holly approached Carol Anderson, the manager of the Surf Ballroom, and asked him if he knew of any charter planes in the area, who can take him and two of his band members to Fargo. Anderson searched his mental directory of local airports and thought of Dwyer Flying Service, owned by Jerry Dwyer. The airport was located in Mason City, less than 20 minutes away from the ballroom. Anderson called Jerry Dwyer, but he was not in at the moment. Instead, he talked to Roger Peterson, a pilot employed by the service. The price per seat was $36, which is approximately 316 in 2019 dollars. Holly agreed to the terms and went back to talk to his band members, Jennings and Elsa. In the meantime, hundreds of teenagers flocked the surf ballroom and danced the night away. The Big Bob Richardson, who was suffering from flu-like symptoms, pled with Jennings to give up his seat on the plane so he can get some rest. Jennings agreed. About the same time, Valance asked Alsop if he can get his seat on the flight, saying that he was also sick from the flu and needed the rest. Alsup jokingly said, all right, let's toss a coin for it. Smiling, Valance agreed. A local disc jockey, Bob Hale, tossed the coin and Valance won. Alsup will have to ride on the bus. So instead of his bandmates, Holly was going on the charter plane with a big bopper and Richie Valence. When Holly learned that Jennings was not flying with him, he told Jennings, I hope your old bus freezes up, in which Jennings smirked to respond, I hope your plane crashes. Waylon Jennings will never forgive himself for those words. When the show ended, Anderson drove the three artists to the Mason City Airport and was met by pilot Roger Peterson. Before leaving, Holly called his wife to let her know that he was flying to Hector Airport in North Dakota. The two exchanged I love yous, then Holly left for the airport. Peterson was preparing the red-and-white 1947 Beechcraft 35 Bonanza for the short flight. The v tail single-engine aircraft seats four, including the pilot. Hours before, Peterson checked in with Air Traffic Communication Service, or ATCS, to ask about the weather, and he was told that all flights were okay with VFR or visual flight rules only. It was 18 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 7 degrees Celsius outside. The weather report said light snow, sky obscured with visibility of 6 miles or 10 kilometers, and wind gusts at 20 to 30 miles per hour or 32 to 48 kilometers per hour. Peterson did not submit a flight path to air traffic control, but promised that he will do it once up in the air. The man boarded the plane, and the pilot started up the engine for the 90-minute plane ride. Holly seated right in front beside the pilot and the other two in the back. When Jerry Dwyer finally arrived, he saw the plane slowly making its way to runway 17. Dwyer went up to the control tower, stepped outside the platform, and watched the Beechcraft Bonanza take off at 12.55 in the morning. The aircraft climbed approximately 800 feet or 244 meters vertically and banked left at 180 degrees. Anderson was still at the airport, also following the plane as it left the ground. He and Jerry watched as the plane's light went up higher, and about a minute later, Jerry thought he saw it descend, but figured, with the curvature of the earth, it was just a plane going out of sight. Eventually, the plane was gone to the darkness of the night. Dwyer tried to contact Peterson through the radio, but was not able to get a hold of him. He even asked radio operators to try again, but with no success. The loss of radio contact was odd, Dwyer felt, but thought, he'll radio ATSC later. When Dwyer got home, his wife sensed that something was bothering him. He told her that he may get a phone call from radio control at any time about Roger's flight. But the phone call never came. He tried calling every tower along the path to Hector Airport to check if the plane was seen anywhere, but not one person said yes. Peterson never checked in either. Once he awoke, Jerry Dwyer got dressed and hurried himself to the Mason City Airport. He's not entirely sure why, but he felt the strong urge to follow the flight path. Dwyer took off in one of his other planes and headed north. Approximately six minutes later, at 9.35 in the morning of February 3, 1959, Jerry looked down and found the wreckage of the red-and-white Beechcraft Bonanza. It was 6 miles or 10 kilometers northwest of the airport. The right wing of the plane left a 6-inch deep skid mark on the ground, about 57 feet long. The beechcraft Bonanza was torn apart in different sized pieces, scattered on the snow-covered cornfield, with its fuselage, nose gear, and door ending up 500 feet away from the main wreckage. The final resting place of the aircraft ended up at a barbed wire fence marking the edge of a cornfield. Jerry Dwyer immediately contacted the sheriff's office, who sent the deputy sheriff to the cornfield, which belonged to a local resident. Inside what was left of the aircraft was pilot Roger Peterson, 21 years old. The bodies of Buddy Holly, 22 years old, Richie Valance, 17 years old, were found outside near the fuselage. J.P. the Big Bopper Richardson, 28 years old, was found over the barbed wire fence. All four were dead. Dwyer also called Carol Anderson to help identify the bodies of the three artists, while Dwyer painfully identified the body of Roger Peterson. Anderson then called Bob Hale, the local disc jockey who tossed the coin that essentially sealed the fate of Ritchie Valence who was on the air at the radio station when he found out. In shock, he broke the news on the air and played a Buddy Holly song. Local reporters and authorities arrived at the crash site and started walking around the mangled remains of the plane, taking pictures and handling the wreckage. As the news from Iowa reached national networks, televised programs and radio stations all over the country interrupted regular programming to report the deaths of Holly, Valance, and Richardson. It was on television that their immediate families learned of their deaths. As you can probably imagine, this news was heartbreaking for fans of the artists and, most importantly, their loved ones. Holly's wife, Maria Elena, suffered from trauma after hearing the news of Buddy's death, which, unfortunately, caused a miscarriage. Since then, authorities have made it a policy not to disclose names of victims before notifying family members. The coroner reported that all four died on impact due to brain trauma. It was a relief to know that no one suffered. Funerals were prepared for all three artists and the pilot. Both Holly and Richardson were buried in Texas, and Valance was returned to his hometown of San Fernando, California. Peterson was buried in Iowa. Despite the tragedy, the Winter Dance Party did not stop touring after the disaster. In Moorhead, Bobby V replaced Buddy Holly as the lead singer, and Waylon Jennings continued from there. The tour completed its contract on February 15th at the Illinois State Armory in Springfield. The Civil Aeronautics Board, the precursor for the National Transportation and Safety Board, initiated a thorough investigation of the crash. The investigation reported that the plane slammed on the ground at a 90-degree turn, nose down, with the right wing reaching the ground first, and made the aircraft cartwheeled then disintegrate on impact. Despite the pilot's years of experience in flying and logging 711 hours, where 128 hours were from the Beechcraft Bonanza, it was found that Roger Peterson was not licensed to operate using only flight instruments. What this means was that Peterson, as well as Dwyer Flying Service, was only certified to fly using visual cues, which can only occur during the day. In the dark winter night and low clouds, the Civil Aeronautics Board reported that it was impossible for the pilot to see where he was going, although traffic control did state to Peterson that at the time of the flight, it was okay to fly under visual flight rules, but in reality, it should have been instrument flight rules only. In addition, Peterson was used to a different type of gyroscope or altitude indicator, where the indicators of elevation and descent were graphically opposite. It was possible that Peterson became disoriented and thought he was ascending, but instead was descending. Lastly, if you recall, Peterson checked in with the ATCS about the weather before taking off. Although he received the right information, ATCS did not inform the pilot about a flash advisory that a 100-mile or 160-kilometer-wide band of snow is closely moving towards the area of his flight path. The Civic Aeronautics Board concluded that the unwise decision of the pilot to continue to fly despite the weather and incorrect instrument caused the crash. In other words, the mix of darkness, poor visibility, failing instruments, and possibly the pilot's disorientation all resulted in the preventable accident that killed four lives, including his own. Jerry Dwyer was skeptical of this conclusion, given that Peterson has flown the Beechcraft Bonanza many times before. There was no way that he was not familiar with the plane. For many years since that day, he and his family received death threats and angry phone calls from fans of the three artists, specifically Buddy Holly's, blaming him for their deaths. The Valens family sued Dwyer Flying Services for $1.5 million in lost wages, but was settled out of court. During interviews, Dwyer stated that there is another, more logical explanation for the crash, which he will reveal in a tell-all book. All he can say was that it was not the weather, but would not say anything more. He stated that he kept some of the wreckage that can back up his side of the story of the crash, and it may steer things up. But to this day, the actual location of the wreckage that Jerry kept and the airframe that was returned to him after the investigation is unknown. Many speculate that Jerry borrowed a neighbor's backhoe and buried everything near his house in Mason City. Despite the threats and angry fans, the Dwyer family supported music students by offering scholarships. Jerry Dwyer passed away at the age of 85 in 2016, after complications that resulted in Alzheimer's. His side of the story will never be known to the world. Other theories plagued this tragedy. During the investigation, a gun owned by Buddy Holly was found in the wreckage. It was then theorized that Holly was angry after the final phone call to his wife and his anger caused him, for some reason, to shoot Richardson in the head while up in the air, which then caused the plane to crash. It was also theorized that Richardson survived the crash and was able to crawl away, which is why his body was found much further than the other three. In 2007, Richardson's body was exhumed and reburied because a bronze statue of the late artist was to be built in his honor. Since the old cemetery did not allow for memorials above ground, Richardson's body was moved to a different site. Richardson's family decided to put the gunshot and survival theories to rest and asked another coroner to re-examine his body. Based on new technology, it was concluded that Richardson did not suffer from any gunshot wounds, and all indications show that he died on impact. In 2015, the National Transportation and Safety Board received a request from a retired pilot, L.J. Kuhn, to reopen the investigation of the plane crash. Kuhn explained that the cause of the accident was not due to pilot error, but maybe due to other equipment-related factors, such as a failed rudder vader or improper weight distribution. The NTSB denied the request, stating that there was not enough evidence to support Kuhn's research. Waylon Jennings spent the rest of his career blaming himself for what happened that night. Despite all that, He continued to successfully play and write music throughout his years and even wrote a song called The Stage in tribute of Holly, Valance, and The Big Bopper. Jennings passed away in 2002. Tommy Alsop also became a successful rockabilly and swing musician after the event. Initially, investigators of the crash thought he was on the plane because Alsop gave Holly his ID so Holly can claim a letter on Alsop's behalf. He was the oldest and last remaining band member of Holly's band and sadly passed away in 2017. 21 years after that fateful night, the dark-framed glasses worn by Buddy Holly at the time of the accident was found at the Mason City, Iowa Courthouse Storage Vault, along with Richardson's diamond wristwatch, a pair of dice, and a cigarette lighter. The glasses were returned to Holly's family and the wristwatch to Richardson's. No one knows who the dice and lighter belonged to. In 1988, a granite memorial was unveiled in front of the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, that commemorates the four victims. The families of those who died attended and together mourned the tragic loss. In the quiet intersection of 315th Street and Gull Avenue in Mason City, Iowa, stands many memorials in honor of the four who died. The memorial located on a privately owned land closest to the crash site is a stainless steel guitar with three records. One record says, That'll Be the Day, the other, Donna, and the other, Chantilly Lace, etched with the names of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper Richardson. To its right is a smaller statue in the shape of aviator wings with Roger Peterson's name etched in front. Not too far away, a large set of Black Wayfarer glasses sits on a signpost, in the image of the same ones worn by Buddy Holly. Another memorial of the stainless guitar in three records was firmly planted in the front of the Riverside Ballroom in Green Bay, Wisconsin. This tragedy had a lasting impact for many years to come. Several movies retold the story of the fateful night. The most popular was La Bamba, shown from the perspective of singer Richie Valens. Valens is hailed as the father of Chicano music, inspiring artists and bands, including Los Lobos, who created a cover of Valens' song, Come On, Let's Go. Buddy Holly influenced generations of singers, songwriters, and bands, including John Lennon, Mick Jagger, Elton John, The Clash, Grateful Dead, Bruce Springsteen, and hundreds more. It was said that the Beatles named their band after the Crickets. Bob Dylan, in his rock and roll acceptance speech, said that he saw Buddy Holly two nights before he died but the greatest and most popular tribute was written and recorded by Don McLean in 1971 with his song American Pie. The eight minute and 33 second song tells the story of how as a 13 year old boy Don found about the death of Buddy Holly one of his musical idols while he was delivering newspapers although this was never confirmed by McLean himself. The song is now officially preserved and registered in the Library of Congress as culturally, historically, or artistically significant. Years later, when the lyric sheets of the song were auctioned off, it was found out that the overall theme was the loss of innocence of the early rock and roll generation, which was all started with the crash and deaths of the three artists on February 3, 1959. It was, from Don's point of view, The day the music died. Thank you for listening to Untimely. I'm curious about what you think of this episode. What do you think Jerry Dwyer knows? What can you theorize about Jerry Dwyer's side of the story? let us know at untimelypodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy this episode and this podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. We like reading reviews. Or connect with us on Twitter at untimelypodcast. We'd love to hear from you.